Welcome to Shelter Cove. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you find encouragement through today's message. For more information, check us out online at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text at 209-340-3115. In May of 2016, I almost froze to death, twice. Let me explain to you how this happened. I went backpacking with five guys. I went with my brother, Wes, my older brother, Wes, who flew out from Tennessee, my cousin, Jacob, and then three of my buddies, Mike, Matt, and Gene. Uh, Matt and Gene are actually on the board of directors here at Shelter Cove. You can ask them about this story. We went up into the emigrant wilderness up off of Highway 108. We were very excited for this backpacking trip. We had been planning it for like two months now. We were talking about the different gear we're gonna bring. We had found this really cool unnamed lake on the maps that we were using. This lake looked like it was situated in this beautiful alpine mountainous area. And and we had these pictures in our heads that we were gonna go explore this lake and summit mountain peaks and catch fish and cook them over an open fire. It was gonna be like this incredible trip. Now, before we went on this trip, about a week out, we started noticing in the forecast that there was a potential for rain. And pretty soon that potential for rain turned into, it's for sure 100% going to rain. But we're brave mountain explorers. We're not going to let a little bit of rain scare us. So we throw in our rain jackets onto our packs and we take off. Now, from the get-go, this trip was difficult. We were walking along the trail and we came up to what was supposed to be this tiny little creek. Only this tiny little creek was actually a raging torrent of water because of all the snow melt from that year. Ton of snow in the Sierra that year. We spent about two hours trying to figure out our way how to get past this river. Once we get past the river, we get back onto the trail only to find that there is so much snow that hasn't melted yet, it's covering the entire trail. And pretty soon we're hiking through the snow. We can't even see the trail. The snow is progressively getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And and we've got 40, 50 pounds on our back with no snowshoes. So we're just like post-holing through this snow. It's miserable hiking. And to make a bad situation even worse, off in the distance, we can see dark storm clouds forming. Now, Gene is hiking with a watch on, and this watch can can sense atmospheric pressure. It senses barometric pressure, and his watch starts beeping like crazy. And and we can feel the wind blowing. We can see these storm clouds starting to roll in. Gene is the voice of reason. He goes, hey, we need to turn around and make camp. We're not going to be in a good spot up here in in this area if we get hit with the storm. So we turn around. We get back into the tree line. We set camp up. No sooner do we set camp up and get the fire going, this, these huge storm clouds roll in. And it doesn't rain on us. It starts snowing on us. And it starts to snow for like six to seven hours. Now, my sleeping setup for this trip, I have a hammock, this thin little hammock, a sleeping hammock. I've got a thin little sleeping mat, a Costco sleeping bag that's rated for 32 degrees, and a small little rain fly and it dumps snow on us for like seven hours. My brother has a thermometer, gets down to 27 degrees that night. Very, very cold, but we're tough mountain explorers. We're not gonna let a little bit of snow stop us. We get up the next day. Next day, we're hiking around, trying to make more progress, doesn't work. We get snowed on that night again as well. Only that night, it gets down to 19 degrees. 
Y'all, I've never been so cold in my entire life. I was shivering all night long. I remember doing like crunches in my hammock to try and warm my body up. Uh, I felt like I was freezing to death, like quite literally. We get up the next morning, we head back down the mountain, and as we're hiking, I can feel this like weird tingling in the, in the back of my right side, like this right here on the, on the right side of my back. And I don't think much of it. I get home, I take my shirt off, and my wife goes, what in the world is that on your back? I have this crazy rash forming like right here on my back across my ribs. Now I think I just got like poison oak or something like that. So I'm taking rubbing alcohol and trying to like dry it out and clean it out. Uh, at one point I was even taking like zit cream and trying to dry out like the blisters and the scabs that are forming on my chest. Uh, the only problem is it's not getting any better. This, this rash is spreading and it is starting to become horribly painful to the point where like I can barely put a shirt on in the morning. So my wife is like, you need to go see a doctor. I'm like, babe, I'm a brave mountain explorer. I don't need to go see no stinking doctor. So I go and see a doctor and my doctor is this really professional, like very clinical uh, minded doctor. And he looks right at me, takes one look at me and he goes, dude, you have shingles. And I was cracking up. I'm like, did you just call me dude? Doc, I've never heard you say anything like that. But uh, I'm like, Doc, shingles? I, I didn't think young people got shingles. And he goes, well, we're not really sure what brings about shingles. But one thing we have noticed is when people are under a lot of stress, they'll sometimes break out in shingles. Have you been under a lot of stress recently? And I told him, well, I almost froze to death two nights in a row. Does that count? Now, I tell you this story because my expectations of how this trip was going to go were very, very different than how it actually turned out. I had these grand expectations of how this trip was going to go, and I turned out to almost freeze to death and got shingles as a result of it. And I tell you this because as we continue our series through the life of Joseph, what you're going to see in our text today, Joseph is going to have very specific expectations of how the day is going to proceed, and his expectations couldn't be further from what's going to actually transpire. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them. Open up with me to Genesis chapter 37. And, and while you're turning there, let me just introduce myself real quick. My name's Chad. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Shelter Cove. If you are newer to our church, uh, whether you're joining in person or online, uh, I just want to say welcome. Man, we're glad to have you here. Uh, and we're going to keep going through our series today on the life of Joseph. What I want to do is pray. We're going to ask God for his help real quick. And then we'll start unpacking the story in our text today. And, and to wrap everything up, I want to ask and I want to answer a very important question uh, that oftentimes gets ignored in the life of a church. So let's pray. Jesus, we need you. Uh, my prayer today, God, is that, that you would speak to people right where they are at. Uh, there are going to be so many different people watching this, different stories, different backgrounds. Uh, they've got different life uh, events and experiences they've gone through. God, there's no way that I could communicate to that broad of an audience. Uh, so Spirit, what I need is, is for you, by your power and through your word, to, to reach people right where they are at. Um, to speak to them and, and encourage them and challenge them in very personal ways. That's, I guess that's what I pray for, Lord. You would be very personal in this time now. Uh, we give this time to you. We need you. We ask for your help. And it is in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, so Pastor Scott last week introduced us to the life and the person of Joseph. He kicked off our series and he gave what I thought was just an amazing sermon. If you missed his sermon, you have got to jump onto our website and check his sermon out. He, he did a stellar job. He absolutely crushed it. He introduced us to Joseph and his family. And here's what we found. Joseph and his family are a dysfunctional nightmare. This family is a train wreck of drama, backbiting, fighting, favoritism. There's all kinds of toxic, toxic problems in this family. Uh, I'll give you just a few to recap. Uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, uh, has multiple baby mamas. He's got four different wives that he's had babies by. And, and obviously there's jealousy, there's infighting, there's drama between the wives. Uh, just so you know, the Bible never condones polygamy. Uh, you watch anybody in the Old Testament or the New who engages in polygamy, and it goes terribly for all of them. Jacob is a living, living proof of this. Uh, Jacob is kind of a lackadaisical father. Uh, I'll give you an example. His daughter Dinah gets raped, and he does nothing about it. He's, in fact, more concerned about the socio-political repercussions if he does something about it than avenging and upholding the honor of his daughter. So his sons, Simeon and Levi, they're the ones that have to do something about it. Uh, Jacob makes no bones about it. He plays favorites. Uh, he lets the entire family know over and over again, Rachel is the favorite wife and Joseph is his favorite son. And because of this favoritism, uh, the, entire, the entire host of, of the brothers, all 11 of the brothers, they despise Joseph. They hate Joseph for this. Joseph is the second to youngest brother. And to be fair, Joseph doesn't do himself any favors. He keeps having these dreams about his family and his brothers bowing down to him. And Joseph over and over lets his brothers know, you guys are going to bow down to me one day. You guys are going to bow to me. Even though I'm the second to youngest brother, you are all going to bow down to me. And it just drives these wedges of resentment and jealousy and hatred even deeper. So that's a quick recap of kind of what's going on as we enter into our text today. Uh, let's read this passage. We're going to just kind of take it in chunks. Uh, we'll explain some of the nuance that's happening here. And then I want to ask you a very important question. Genesis 37, we'll pick it up in verse 12. Here's how my translation reads. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So you may have missed it, but already there, we see the family dynamics at play. Where's Joseph at? Joseph is at home with his dad, Jacob. He's at home. The brothers are out shepherding the flock. They're out shepherding Jacob's sheep. Now, I don't know if you know this about being a shepherd. It is a dirty, difficult job. You are outside, it's hot, you get sweaty, you get dusty, and you have to be around smelly sheep who pee and poop all over the place. Now, the oldest brother is the one who should be home. Joseph's one of the youngest. He should be out tending the sheep, but he's not. 
he's at home with his dad. And what does his dad tell him? His dad says, go and give me a report. Give me a word of what your brothers are doing. I want you to go out there and supervise your brothers. Bring me back a report. So Joseph, in his mind, he's, he's going to go out there with his cup of coffee, his clipboard. He's going to write down who's doing a good job, who's not doing a good job, and bring word back to his dad. Uh, Joseph is like Jacob's informant. He, he's basically going to rat on his brothers who's doing good and, and who's not doing good. And, and he's sent to an area called Shechem. Now Shechem in the Old Testament, there's a lot of big, pivotal moments that happen in Shechem. Abraham receives the the promise from God that they're going to inherit land. That happens at Shechem. As we talked about earlier, uh, Joseph's sister Dinah, she's raped in Shechem. That's where it happens. A couple of hundred years later, Joseph's bones are going to be taken out of Egypt. And you know where they're buried? They're buried in Shechem. A lot happens around this little city. And this is where Joseph is headed to. And what we're going to see here is he gets redirected from Shechem to somewhere else. And the events that transpire there shape the rest of the book of Genesis. So let's read what happens. We'll pick it up here in verse 15. A man found him, found Joseph, wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, I, ha- I would just guess that his brothers didn't want to be near Shechem because of the family trauma that had happened there. There were bad memories that happened at Shechem with their sister. Simeon and Levi actually end up killing all the men at Shechem. So I'm just going to guess that the relationship between uh, Jacob's family and the people of Shechem just not very good at this point. Things are still a little bit tense. So they skip out of Shechem and go to Dothan. Verse 18, watch this. They, being the brothers, they saw him, Joseph, from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Don't read past that. Don't skip past that, especially if you're familiar with the story. You've got to feel how dark that is. You've got to see how twisted this is. Like they, They're not just saying, we want to kill you. Like I grew up with two other brothers. We used to say that all the time, I'm going to kill you. And we never actually meant it. But we meant we might, uh, it might punch you hard or I might tackle you hard, but we never actually meant, I'm going to end your life. That's what they mean here. We're going to end you. 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. So they not only have the desire to do it, they're plotting and conspiring how to get away with it. Now watch who comes to his rescue. This is interesting. 22. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. That he, Reuben, might rescue him, Joseph, out of their hand to restore him to his father. Here's why this is interesting. Do you know who the oldest brother is? It's Reuben. Reuben is the one who should be back with Jacob. Reuben is the one who should be the favored son. Reuben's the one who should be coming out to supervise the brothers, not Joseph. 
If there's anybody who should be upset at Joseph, it's Reuben. But yet he's the one here who says, no, 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 don't kill him. You can throw him into the pit, just don't kill him. And the passage says here, Reuben's kind of conspiring his own plan. He wants to be the one that rescues Joseph and brings him back to Jacob. So he's kind of trying to get like an attaboy from Jacob because he'll be the one that rescues the favored son. Watch what happens next. We'll pick it up here in verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So that's good, no water. He's not going to drown, but he also doesn't have any water to drink. Middle of the desert, it's not good. Then they sat down to eat. This is one of the most sociopathic moments in, in our entire passage. The brothers strip Joseph of his dignity, strip him of his robe that signifies his position of favor, throw him into the pit. He probably gets banged up, sliding down, falling down this pit. Joseph in the bottom of this pit, screaming out for help, screaming out he's sorry, pleading with his brothers for mercy. And the brothers sit down and they savor a meal together. They are like relishing this moment. They can hear their brother pleading for mercy. And they're like, hey, pass the bread. Hey, pass the figs, pass the wine. They're just relishing this moment. They sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. All right, so who are the Ishmaelites? Uh, Joseph's grandpa, Isaac, had a brother. Isaac's brother was named Ishmael. And just like jo Joseph and his family with Jacob, Isaac and Ishmael had major beef between the two. Like to the point where Abraham has to kick out Ishmael and his mom, he basically strands them in the desert to die. But God, by an act of mercy, spares them. So how do you think Ishmael views Isaac's family? Probably not very good. So the brothers are savoring this meal and they see their great uncles and their great uh, aunts and their second, third cousins. They see the Ishmaelites. And Judah concocts his plan. Hey, we can make a profit off of Joseph. We can get rid of him and make money at the same time. Let's sell him to these family members who already don't like us. They'll probably mistreat Joseph. And then they're going to take him to Egypt far away from us and sell him into slavery. It's the perfect plan. And so that's what they do. They pull Joseph up out of the pit and then they sell him to the Ishmaelites. Here's what it says in 28. Then Midianite traders pass by. Midianite just means Ishmaelite. It's a different word, same people. Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And that's where our text ends for today. Now, if I had to guess, as Joseph is in that caravan on his way down to Egypt, you know what I bet he's thinking? God, this is not how it was supposed to go. 
God, this is not what I had planned. My expectations for today are not lining up with what actually took place. God, you've given me a clear revelation numerous times over that my brothers are going to be bowing down to me and here I am, betrayed by them, sold into family members who don't like us, being taken down to Egypt to be sold as a slave. What on earth are you doing, God? I mean, Joseph is going to be in this caravan ride for uh, possibly weeks down to Egypt. And, and then he's going to be in jail for a while. And then he's going to go to Potiphar's house and, and things will go well for a little bit, but then they take a sharp turn and get bad again. And then he's going to be back in jail for a couple of years. Like this is a long, long season of Joseph's life that's starting where he's got to be thinking over and over, God, what are you doing? And it's here that I want to pause for a second. And I want to ask this very important question. How do we navigate seasons where we feel betrayed by God? Because here's the deal. You follow Jesus long enough, there are going to be seasons. Sometimes they'll be short, sometimes they will be long. Long, way longer than you ever thought. There will be seasons where you feel like, God, what are you doing? God, this is not how it was supposed to go. This is not the way it was supposed to play out. And if you are not prepared for these seasons, they can be devastating. I mean, geez, even if you are prepared for these seasons, they're devastating. Because they kind of shake the foundation of, of our faith. They make us start to think, God, do you even care about me? God, I would never subject somebody I love to this kind of treatment. Why are you subjecting me to it? So how do we handle these seasons? I want to make sure that I love you well enough to try and prepare you for these times. Uh, three biblical truths that I want to share with you that are going to help us prepare for this. Number one, if you're tracking along in the notes, here's what it will say. Remember, the promise of blessing does not mean the absence of difficulty. God has promised his believers blessing, but it does not mean there will be no difficulty. Um, Joseph here is promised blessing. God has promised, he's shown him, you're going to be in a position of power and influence to the point where your brothers bow before you. But it doesn't mean it's going to be all smooth sailing. For us today, uh, the scriptures have all kinds of beautiful blessings they promise us. But you know what else the Bible promises us? John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus all over the Gospels telling his disciples, if the world hates me, guess what? They're going to hate you too. There will be difficulty in this life. And just because the Lord has promised goodness to us doesn't mean that we will evade difficulty. Uh, I need to tell you this because there's a lot of pastors. I won't even call them pastors. They're false teachers. They're false teachers is what they are. They're making a lot of money selling a version of Jesus that doesn't exist in the Bible. They're making a ton of money selling people the idea that Jesus exists to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. And if you follow Jesus, he'll give you all the health, all the wealth, and all the happiness you could ever want. The Bible just does not promise that. There is inherent blessing from following Jesus. There's wisdom, there's goodness that will come from it. But Jesus made no bones about it. You pick up your cross daily and you die. That's what being a follower of his is like. Now, somebody once asked me, 
uh, Chad, why can't God just make it easy? If God is sovereign, if God is all-powerful, he could just make it easy. Why doesn't he just make it easy? And I had a hard time with that question until I had kids. Until I started to notice that if I do everything for my kids, if I make life totally simple, easy, smooth sailing for my kids, you know what will happen to my kids? They'll become obnoxious brats. And I just love them too much to let them become that. So it means on occasion, and when it's appropriate, man, I I just have to let you struggle through this because it's going to build character. It's going to build resiliency. It's going to build compassion for those who are struggling. The promise of blessing does not mean the absence of difficulty. The second truth here I want you to remember. Number two, remember, just because you can't see a reason doesn't mean there isn't one. Now, this point here does nothing to address the soul. It does nothing to address the heartbreak that difficult seasons bring. I'm well aware that this point probably sounds crass. It probably sounds cold. I'm well aware of that. But let me explain. I have to address what's happening in the mind first. Because where the mind goes, the soul follows. When people go through difficult times, here is a dangerous train of thought that you can fall into. I cannot think of any good reason why I'm going through this. Therefore, there must not be any good reason. And that is a fallacious, dangerous way of thinking. Here's why. When you say that, what you're doing is you're elevating your mind, your intellect, to the level of God's. You're saying, my thinking, my perception, what I can take in and compute is infallible. It is on par with God. I'm seeing the entire picture. And I can't think of a good reason why this should happen. Therefore, there isn't one. Therefore, God has made a mistake. Therefore, God doesn't love me. And of course, your mind is not that smart. Right? I would not have to look very hard at your life to see that your mind is not that capable you definitely wouldn't have to look hard at my life to see my mind is not that capable. Here's what the Bible's going to say, Isaiah 55, 8. Isaiah says, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. So are his thoughts higher than our thoughts. He's seeing eternity before him. He's seeing a perspective you and I cannot relate to. So just because we can't see a good reason doesn't mean that there isn't one. And here's the deal, man. In this life, we may not ever know the reasons why some things happen. Here's how the Joseph story is going to end, though. It ends with a profound statement by Joseph. Joseph, as his brothers come to him for help and they bow before him, Joseph says, hey, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, that he might save all kinds of people. The wonderful truth about our God is he can take what was intended for evil and turn it into good. So remember, just because you can't see a reason doesn't mean that there is one. The third truth I want to share with you here says this. Remember, find comfort in a Savior who's well acquainted with grief. I don't know if you caught this, but as we were reading, there's a lot of little shadows and pictures of Jesus in the life of Joseph. That was one thing Scott did a great job of last week. He he started to highlight all these little shadows and representations of Jesus to come. And that's not by accident. God is a masterful storyteller. What he's trying to do here, even all the way back in Genesis, is start to orient the mind of the reader forward. He's trying to get you to start thinking, someone else is coming. 
that there's a better Joseph coming. There's a better Savior coming. Like, I'll give you a couple examples here. Uh, Joseph is the favored son. Jesus is described as the only begotten son of the Father, the, the preeminent one in Colossians 1. Uh, Joseph is stripped of his robe, thrown into a pit. Jesus, when he's crucified, is stripped of his clothing, killed on a cross, and thrown into a tomb. Joseph is betrayed by his own brethren. Jesus is betrayed by 12 men he poured his life into. Joseph is betrayed for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus is betrayed for 30. There's all these little pictures, these little shadows, foreshadowing of Christ to come here. And the reason why this is so important is because it helps us understand who Jesus is like, what he's like. When you and I are going through difficult seasons, uh, we do not have a God in heaven who sits with his arms crossed and his face scowled and, and just coldly calls us to get our acts together and suck it up. No. On the other hand, what we have is a Savior who himself was betrayed. A Savior who himself wept. A Savior who himself sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because his blood pressure was so high, his heart rate was so fast, it burst the capillaries in his skull and his sweat glands in his scalp. In that moment, Jesus says, my soul is troubled unto the point of death. The Most High felt betrayal, despair, anguish, like you and I do. That's why Isaiah prophesies about him in Isaiah 53. He will be a man well acquainted with sorrow. And what that means is it's safe to go to him with your sorrow. It's safe to go to him with your grief. Uh, let me try to explain, at least in my own life, how I've tried to find comfort in really hard times. Uh, there have been two spiritual disciplines that I've tried to employ. Uh, praying brutally honest prayers. Going to the Lord and, and just holding nothing back. I mean, airing it all out. Here's the deal. He already knows you're feeling it. He already knows you're thinking it. You, you never surprise God with your prayers. Uh, so it's more for you than it is for him. But going to him and, and just laying it all out. I'm feeling this. I'm thinking this. I'm wondering why you're doing this. I feel like you have stabbed me in the back. I feel like you've betrayed me. I feel like you've left me high and dry. I can't think of any good reason why you're doing this. Why are you doing this? And in those brutally honest prayers, you always have to wrap up with this. Because if you just do brutally honest prayers, it's not as healthy. It's not as good as finishing with, with this. You've got to finish with this. Please, Jesus, comfort me now. Please, I need comfort. I need peace. Help me. So that's been super helpful for me in finding comfort. Uh, the other one has been to just, I don't know the right word, maybe like you just kind of marinate in the Psalms. I don't know another way to say it. Uh, read the Psalms and read them over and over and over again. Uh, the Lord has ministered to my heart. He, he's, he's just like injected comfort into my heart through the book of Psalms. I'll give you a couple that have been huge in my life. Psalm 6, Psalm 22, Psalm 42. 
Because, because what you see in these Psalms are, are the, the back and forth. You see guys going, why are you doing this, God? Why have you abandoned me? I cry out to you by day and you never answer me. I cry out to you by night and you remain silent. But then you see on the other hand, but I know you're faithful. But I know you won't leave me. So how do we find comfort in our Savior, man? You got to pray to him and you got to just marinate in the word. And I would highly recommend the Psalms. If I had to summarize everything I'm trying to say, how do, we, how do we navigate these seasons where we feel like God has betrayed us? It's to do this. It's to remember that he's faithful. I want to show you a verse here. It's out of the book of Isaiah. I've been thinking a lot on this verse. This verse has been uh, really just encouraging my heart. And here's what it says. It's, it's not, by no accident, he says remember here a couple of times. Isaiah 46, verse 8. We'll throw this up here on the screens. Here's what it says. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. When we are in these seasons, what's the proper response? Remember that God is going to accomplish his word. He has never failed yet and he is not going to fail. When the scripture says God is going to bind up the brokenhearted, he will be faithful to do that. When the scripture says, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he's not going to fail in that. When the scripture says, uh, I will create you into a new creation, behold, the old has passed away, the new has come, that I will be faithful to finish the good work I have started, he will not fail in that. When the scripture says, I keep in perfect peace those whose mind is stayed on me, he will be faithful to complete that. When you feel like God has left you, recall to mind, remember, because the truth is you and I are forgetful creatures. Remember what he's done in the past. Remember that his word has never failed and that he will bring to pass all he has said. It may not happen on our time frame. It may not happen the way we think it will. In fact, it probably won't happen the way we think it will. But he will be faithful. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless. Uh, in the midst of Joseph's story here, Lord, help us to find encouragement for those, God, who are in the throes right now of feeling like you've left them high and dry. Remind them, God, that you will never leave or forsake. Remind them, God, that you are closer than a brother and you will not fail in the promises you've given to us. Strengthen us, we need it. Encourage us, God, we need it. Correct us when we're wrong. Oh, Lord, how we need that too. I thank you for the time that we've had together, Lord. Pray you would bless those who hear this now. Lead them, shape them more into the image of Jesus. And I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.